High Country Podcast. Hey guys, this is Brad Carter with Altitude Outdoors and the Hunt the High Country Podcast. This is episode number four. I'm here today with my co-host, Billy Kennington, and we're talking with Kyle Paxman about high country mule deer, elk, Lyme disease, and creating memories in the field. So this is a good one, guys. You want to pay attention to it. Those of you that uh, follow us along on uh, social media, especially our uh, Altitude Invasion page on Facebook, um, we're going to be posting a few days before we do these podcasts. So if you have any specific questions that you'd like answered, please let us know and we'll try to incorporate them into our podcast. Also, depending on where you're listening to this, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and we're also uploading the audio to our YouTube channel. But be sure you check out our website because every time we post a podcast, there'll be a new post on there. And in that post is pictures and a little more, bit more information about our guest or about ourselves and some content and information and photos of a lot of the stories that we talk about. So if you want to see the bucks and the bulls that we talk about on these podcasts, head over there and check it out. It's www.altitudeoutdoors.com. On the right-hand link, scroll down a little bit. There's a podcast link there. If you hit that, it's going to bring up all of the podcasts that we've done. Thanks again for listening, and we'll jump into it. Uh, here's Kyle Paxman. Hey, guys. This is the Hunt the High Country podcast, and uh, we've got a special guest, Kyle Paxman, with us tonight. And we appreciate you being here, Kyle. Yeah, no problem. Be fun. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how what got you into hunting, and, and we'll go from there. Alrighty, so I've got uh, three little kids and one on the way. We're having another baby in August, our fourth and final one, hopefully. <laughs> Congrats. Uh, um, thanks. Yeah, we're excited. Do supply chain for for a job. So I've done that for about eighteen years, and the place I work at now, I've been at five years. It's called Wavetronics, and it's good. I get enough vacation to go chase around, so it makes it nice. You know, hunting wise, I my family wasn't really diehard hunters when growing up. But I Monroe elk tag when I was 15 here in Utah. And that kind of like started everything, I guess. And so we got a lot more serious at that point on. And then uh, even then, we were still just hunting Utah general season, basically. And when I went on my mission, I came home. And my parents had put me in actually for a G tag in Wyoming. And I drew. And so I had that waiting for me when I came home off my mission in 98. It was our first out-of-state hunt. And we didn't know what we were doing. I think we spent two scouting trips and really didn't see anything. And I shot a 32-inch buck, luckily, like on the third day we were there, just kind of stumbled into it. So that started everything. And after that, we started scouting a ton, basically. And from that hunt, it kind of branched into other states. And now I try to hunt two or three states every year. So, so Kyle, which states are you hunting? Uh, it depends on where I can draw tags, but usually, you know, Wyoming recently about every other year and then Colorado every year uh, Utah and then I apply in Nevada Idaho Arizona you know and then Colorado Wyoming well speaking of some of those states um, let's just jump right into it um, I've seen pictures of that big buck you killed in Wyoming and uh, from everything that I've heard and especially the one of the stories on the, the, our website altitudeoutdoors.com that buck this year kind of had a little bit of special meaning. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that buck? Yeah, sure. I had a, a tag two years ago and found a big deer in one of my favorite spots and ended up not being able to get him killed. Struggled a little bit to find other bucks. 
ended up shooting a small buck kind of towards the very end of the hunt. And then I didn't draw the, the, in 2015, I was sick. And so I did not even apply. And then last year we convinced other friends to put in with points and drew again. I actually found the same giant buck that we'd hunted for three years now. He disappeared before the bow hunt this year and we couldn't ever pin him back down. So we started scouting quite a bit. I think the first trip I made was in mid-July. Only went into the one area, and then our next trip was about two weeks later, and went into two different areas. Uh, the first area, we found a bunch of big deer. Didn't see the drop time buck on that trip, but we got home. A guy that we know that actually lives in Wyoming had texted us some pictures of a trail camera that he'd had, and it was the drop time buck. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of knew that that guy only hunts one spot, and so we had a pretty good hunch well, he was in the same area, general area we were. So we made, I think, two more trips. It was kind of a toss-up on what deer to hunt. One of them's, you know, like I said, we've hunted him three years, and he disappears every year, and we've never seen him with uh, after opening day of the bow hunt. The other area is a little bit more docile to get into, and there were several big deer, and so I kind of chose to go that route. Uh, I wasn't able to bow hunt last year, but my friend did, and he had uh, a couple chances at... At that point was our number one buck was about a 34 inch six by six that was probably right around 200 and there was a book typical kind of running with him mm-hmm. so that was our number one and number two deer and we'd always debated about well if we see the drop time buck is he a shooter or not because the, the trail cam picture we had wasn't the greatest uh, you know we thought he was a 30 inch 180 type buck with a 10 or 12 inch drop time so big deer but it, you know it's kind of a three by four frame so it was got to kill him for the drop time but he wasn't you know, as, as, as crazy as our other two deer that we were a little bit more excited about. The bow hunt kind of came and went, and my buddy that I hunt with a lot, he'd actually shot a buck with his bow and couldn't turn it back up. And so he kind of was disheartened a little bit for the rifle hunt. So I ended up going with a friend from Idaho that didn't have a tag, and he was just kind of there for the ride. I went in a day early to, to get camp set up and look around. I don't know if you remember, but that day before the hunt, it stormed a whole bunch. You couldn't see much all day. So it was a kind of sit in the tent all day, right? Right. Yeah. You know, opening morning, we woke up to about uh, two inches of snow. thought it was going to be awesome, but it socked in about an, half an hour after daylight. And we couldn't see anything. So opening morning was kind of a bust. We did see, we ran into the guy that had sent us the trail cam picture, and so it kind of confirmed that that deer was there somewhere. I told him that I was hunting the other one, and so it, we kind of just parted ways and, you know, whisked each other well, so to speak kind of my fingers crossed but right <laughs> you know finally it started breaking i think around 10 11 o'clock and so we decided let's get out of the tent and so we started kind of still hunting some timber back and forth and probably ran into about 15 bucks none of them were, were super big one probably 175 type buck and so i'd kind of set my mark on you know either of those two bigger deer uh, for that trip we were going to be there i think four days trying to turn one of them up we came back to the glassing point we like probably about 4:30 in the afternoon and within minutes of sitting down my friend eric i kind of said there's this knob about a mile and a half away that uh, always has big deer on it but they're really hard to kill and so within seconds of sitting down he's like hey there's a deer on your knob and so we put the scopes on him and kind of looking into the the sun a little bit so it's hard to tell what he was and he, he was like a statue. He wouldn't move. So as we're kind of staring at him, uh, I noticed a deer move behind him in the pines about 40 yards. And right off the bat, it was no brainer that you'd see the big drop tine hanging down. So we, we watched him, and he kind of fed up the hill a little bit, pulled out the trail cam pictures, and we confirmed it was him. And 
you know, honestly, we I debated about it for probably five minutes going over there to try to kill him just because I knew where he was. It was tough. I wasn't sold on how big he was. You know, my friend Eric finally looked at me and he's like, dude, he's he's 32 plus 10 to 12 inch drop time. You got to go try to kill it. And so I go, like, yeah, you're right. Let's go. So we loaded stuff up and ran kind of as fast as we could. We had to go off the knob we were on and then cross a valley, then up another ridge. It took us a little over an hour to do it. And right when we started climbing the ridge on the opposite side, there were two horses tied up. And instantly my heart kind of sank. And I'm like, oh, no, somebody else has seen him and beat us to him. And, uh, you know, blew him out. Kind of just looked at each other. and was like, well, we haven't heard a shot. we got to keep going. So we started climbing the hill. And it's really super steep. So it's one of those ridges that you can't really get anywhere to shoot across at it. You've got to be on it uh, to shoot something. And I've probably tried that. I don't know, three or four other times, and always just blown him out. Never had a, a shot at him. Where this buck was, he was kind of over the top of a little tiny draw, and so that was our game plan, was to try to get to the head of that where we could see a little bit, and hopefully he was still there. You know, right as we got to the top of the draw, we blew a bunch of elk out. And so, again, I'm like, oh, this is this is just not going to happen. There's too much going on over here. There's no way a deer that size and age is going to stick around. Right. So again, it's like at that point we were within about 200 yards of where we could see, and so we're like, well, we got to keep going. And so we we crept up to the edge, and as soon as we got to where we could see, they were both standing right where we left them. They probably hadn't moved 30 yards in an hour and a half. Hmm. So I unclipped my pack and kind of slid up, and I think it was about uh, 290 yards is what we ranged him at. And uh, the sagebrush was high enough that I couldn't get a very good rest. So I kind of had to shoot him with one bipod leg down and one kind of free floating. And I was a little nervous. Right. <laughs> Fever set him as to skosh. You know, he looked pretty big in the rifle scope at 290 yards. And I, I put it on him and pulled the trigger and nothing happened. And I realized the safety was on. So that was probably good because I think it made me calm down a little bit, you know, refocus. And I resettled and shot and I heard the slap. And the other buck uh, took about two bounds and just stopped and turned around and looked backwards. And we sat there for about 15 minutes and didn't see him. And the other buck didn't blink for that whole time period. So we finally got up and headed over there, and, and uh, he was kind of dead in his tracks. You know, at this point, we were still thinking he was probably 32, mid, you know, 180-type buck with a big drop tying. And when I got there, his, he was kind of rolled up on his head. And when I pulled him out, it was instantly obvious that we'd underestimated him by quite a bit he had probably one of the biggest body deer i've ever been on i haven't got his age back yet but you know gary the trek check station was thinking he was anywhere from nine to ten or eleven years old mm-hmm. and so you know he had 30 inch ears and ended up being about 35 inches wide and in the velvet he's about 197 pretty cool i was excited ancient old bruiser that's cool <laughs> Sometimes they throw you off when their bodies are that big. And I think a lot of Wyoming deer, compared to like Utah deer, they have bigger ears. A lot of mature bucks around here have a 25-inch ear. Whereas, at least when I hunted them in Utah, I don't think they were quite that big. More like 22, 23. There are certain units in Utah that I think they just have, like the book cliffs, for example, they're genetically small. Right. And so you've got to take that into consideration when you're looking at things that you know, they're not as wide as you think they are. They just have tiny little heads. Right. You know, I, I think Wyoming and Colorado especially, a lot bigger body deer, and it's 23, 24, 25-inch heads are a little bit more common than you think. 
Well, that's a cool buck. It's, it's always nice when you walk up on them and, there's, and they grow instead of shrink, though, huh? Yeah, it, it was cool. It, it was after that, you know, that you, it took us probably two hours to take pictures and get him taken care of. And the funny thing is, is we were there, like, we, I probably shot, and within a half an hour, those horses rode up on us right at dark. And we were kind of thinking, oh, they're gonna, this will be awesome. We can get some help to get out of here. Right. The guys didn't even get off their horse. Pretty rude. They just kind of, oh, we heard you shoot. What'd you get? And I held him up, and they said, oh, nice buck, and just kept riding. Uh, didn't even stop. And I was like, oh, that's pretty neat. It didn't hurt my feelings any that they, you know, didn't get him, I guess. Right. I don't, I don't even think they knew he was there, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Well, I bet not very many people did. So Kyle, you talk a little bit about hunting multiple states. You know, what what advice would you give guys that really haven't hunted m- much in different states, and and your deci- especially your decision making process when it comes to um, hunts out of state? So you know, my philosophy has always been to get points in whatever states that I can. You know, obviously there's budget that comes into mind. Uh, when I was single, I didn't have a family. That was a little easier. But the way I look at it is the states that I have to buy a license in, and so Arizona and Nevada, I get a point for everything. You know, if I'm going to spend the $120 to buy the license, uh, I get a point for everything that walks. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never looked at a lot of the other states as far you know, New Mexico, I've never done that. I've thought about it a few years. But usually I have enough going on if I get two or three tags that I'm, I usually call that pretty good. So, you know, between Colorado and then Utah, and then usually I either go to Idaho or Wyoming, kind of what i try to do every year you know my my biggest advice i guess on out-of-state hunting is you know there's a lot of units that are really good but you've got to learn them where we've had the most success is hunting the same area over and over and over again you know you learn the deer's habits you learn kind of what happens when they get pressured you know there's a lot of guys that go hunt a different unit in colorado every year they're chasing kind of the glory spot with landowner tags and whatnot and they never do really well you know, we've hunted the same second choice unit in Colorado for, I think, six years now. You know, it's not a great tag, but we've learned it well enough and kind of know what goes on that we're able to be successful. You know, we've killed, and I think so, I've shot three bucks in there in the last five years that I've gone. Uh, one of them was a 184, uh, and the other two weren't terrible. And my friends have shot uh, a 188 buck and a 180 buck, and so we've done okay. You know, for a tag you can hunt every year. But there's chances there. We've seen bigger ones every year. Last year we hunted it for six days. And I think we saw eight bucks probably over between 175 and 190. Just could never get all the way on them. And then I ended up shooting a, a meat buck on the last day right above the road. So that worked out well. But, you know, so out of state wise, I usually, whatever budget allows, I get points. And then, you know, I, I'm sitting on a lot of points in a lot of states. And so it's just a matter of trying to capitalize on the right right year and when I can afford it, basically. You know, I'm, I'm one behind Max in Arizona, so the, their new law kind of killed me. I got pipe dreams of hunting the Strip someday, so I've got 19 points down there. But with their new law, it might be a long wait. You know, there's, there's both ways to look at it. Kind of my strategy is, you know, I have states that I can hunt every year, where it be at Colorado or Idaho. And then I have those states that I'm building points on that I'm going to hunt every couple of years and then the ones that I'm going to hunt, you know, once in my lifetime type thing. Right. So I think it's good to kind of have a game plan. Like I, I don't know. My wife teases me that I'm a planner. You know, I like to know what's going on five years from now with my points basically. And so I, 
I try to have a kind of a long-term strategy of why am I building points here and is it going to be worth it? Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I, I have a spreadsheet. My wife makes fun of me for it too because I've got all my, like all my current points and when I'm projected to draw the next, you know, the unit that I'm after and sort of bucket list hunts that are way down the road. It's tough to keep track of them all if you don't do something like that, I feel like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I do the same thing. You know, I, I'm a member of a couple of the, like, Hunting Fool and the new one, the Split Off Epic. And so they both have that kind of point, point tracking systems on their websites. So that that's helpful. You know, I don't know really if their information is anything I don't really, or didn't already know in regards to units. But it is kind of helpful to get other opinions to confirm things. Right. And then when you do draw when you do draw a tag, there it's extremely helpful because they the network you can connect to is is immense. You know, the hunting fool will give you a call list of all their members that have drawn the tag. And so you can call all those guys that are usually pretty diehard hunters and typically get some decent information from them. Do you use their like consulting services very much or mostly just the magazine and then the call list? Usually just the magazine and the call list. I don't know. I, I've I've got a lot of friends in the industry, and so usually when I draw tags, I'm able to get connected with people pretty quickly in regards to date areas. So I usually don't have to use their consultants too much, I guess. Yeah, there's getting to be a lot of options out there to look to, to for tags between Hunt and Fool and Epic and Eastman's and Go Hunt and all those. But it's a good thing. More information is never, never a bad thing, I guess. No, exactly. I think it's good. You know, there's a price tag with all of that, and, and that gets a little bit annoying. I'll probably let my hunting full one lapse, actually, and go to Epic instead. I don't know. I don't know if it's worth having both of them running at the same time. Uh, my buddy that I hunt with, he's good friends with the Epic guys, and so we know them a little bit. Ryan Hatch is actually a distant cousin. I didn't want to be name-dropping, but so I know them quite well and have mm-hmm. done quite a few articles from Really Crazy and things. And so they're always really good to help if I draw some weird tag. You know, they can get me hooked up with guys that they know that have hunted it and whatnot. No, I definitely think the networking is, is huge, you know, once you draw that, that tag. Uh, one question that I have is, you know, other than the networking, what, what other things do you use? Let's say a guy goes into a new unit that you've never hunted before. What are some of the tools or tips or tactics that you use to kind of select those areas and figure them out where you're actually going to hunt? So if I already, you know, if I have the tag and never been to the unit before, you know, I usually try to get there to scout. And so typically, hopefully I've gotten information to kind of where to start. You know, when I applied for the unit, drew the tag, I kind of have some general ideas already where to look. So, you know, I do use Google Earth quite a bit and kind of look over, you know, look for basins or example that look good if it's high country type thing. I typically call the biologist and ask for migration route information. You know, if it's a later season type hunt, see if they'll divvy up any of that info. One of my good friends, Eric, that I mentioned before, he's actually a biologist for Idaho. And so a lot of times we have him call because then it's biologist to biologist talking and he's able to pry a little bit better information out of them. <laughs> right. I usually try to get in the unit to scout at least once. And if I can't do that, usually what I do is I go drive out there. Like on, if it starts on a th- Saturday, I'll drive out there on a Thursday scout friday so i at least have an idea of maybe where to be opening morning even if i have to close the hunt a little bit shorter i I like to get at least one full day of scouting in before the season starts you know a lot of these hunts the best time to kill them is first light opening morning and so if you don't have something kind of a good idea where to be it can get really tough you know a couple days in after they've been chased a little bit yeah that's good advice 
So Kyle, we, a lot of us, uh, when we're out in the backcountry, you know, there are some dangers out there. You know, you hear horror stories of guys getting Giardia or, or different uh, other disease type processes. One that I've heard about all my life and different things, but never really had much experience with it is that of Lyme disease. I think there's not very many sportsmen that have been out there and not had ticks crawl all over you. And, you know, it always kind of freaks me out when you don't check for them. But um, why don't you tell, you did say that you were sick. Um, if you don't mind, let's go into a little bit of Lyme disease and kind of your experience with that and just kind of some advice and what you'd say to other hunters. Sure. So yeah, uh, Lyme disease is not good. <laughs> so don't get it. The only, I've had a lot of ticks on me. The only one I can remember ever, ever really biting me, I was probably 12, 11 or 12, and I had one bury into my back about a half an inch. And uh, my dad, like, lit a match and blew it out and stuck it on there and killed it in there, which was gross because then it formed a big zit-like thing and popped out, you know, a week later. But, you know, it didn't have the, the classic bullseye mark, which is kind of the the warning sign of you've got something from a tick. 20 years ago, nobody thought anything about things like that. They don't They don't know if that's really when I got it or if I got it, you know, shed hunting. Probably two months before my symptoms started, we went shed hunting in Wyoming really late in the year, so like the first week of July, and the ticks were filthy. And I don't remember ever any biting me, but they are definitely all over me. I had a fever about a week later for a couple days and just felt crappy, and then it kind of went away. And then uh, my oldest daughter, who's going to be eight this year, was born. And about three days after she was born, I was playing softball and just collapsed. Just didn't feel well. Was having a lot of like intense stomach pain and fever and chills and all kinds of weird stuff. So they, you know, they were chasing all kinds of things. They thought I had Crohn's disease for a while. You know, it took them honestly about seven years to finally decide it was Lyme disease. I served my mission in the Dominican Republic and I had my appendix ruptured while I was there. Oh, so they didn't know if that was it all related or anything. You know, I had to have emergency surgery in a foreign country that isn't really, uh, you know, ideal. But it's weird. Lyme disease is known as the great imitator. And the more I learn about it, the more it kind of freaks you out. It can manifest in a lot of different ways. And so mine's in my digestive system, mainly in my liver and in my small intestine. You know, the, the bad thing about it is that if you don't catch it right at its onset, you can't kill it with antibiotics. So if you don't get it within the first week or two of, of being bitten, it's a bacterial infection. And what it does is it kind of encapsulates inside of you and kind of forms these little bacteria clusters that they can't figure out how to kill with antibiotics yet. So I'll never get rid of it until they, you know, figure something out. I actually ended up going to a guy in Idaho. It's called the West Clinic, who's kind of world renowned for treating weird diseases. They're kind of a holistic type place. But they looked at my blood and saw the Lyme disease parasites. And then also I was just chuck full of parasites. They think that that would probably have been in there for my mission. And they never just cleaned them all out. Um, but like in one drop of blood, I had like five or 600 different parasites swimming around. Oh, wow. And so he's like, no wonder your liver's having problems. It can't filter all this crap. You know, you're, you're just getting clogged up and your liver's, you know, failing and things like that because your blood's so bad. So I ended up having 10 IV treatments in about a three-week period where they do almost like a transfusion type thing. Uh, they take your, a pint of your blood out, run it through some UV light filtration, and try to help clean out your blood as good, as good as you can. Their biggest thing is they get your immune system built up. My immune system was gone. Like between the parasites and Lyme disease, 
I didn't have an immune system. So I was catching everything that came through. Uh, my wife teaches preschool. And so, you know, you can imagine all the little not those ankle biters that come in the house talking about parasites right it's a bacteria (laughs) (laughs) so you know once i've got all that cleaned up i've done a lot better these last two years still have to go up for treatment about once a quarter just to try to check my blood and and make sure things are good and keep my immune system kind of dialed in i read an article today and if, if you go search lyme disease what's funny about it is you ask a lot of the doctors and they'll say that it's not prevalent at all in the west you know, it's a back east disease. It's on the east coast, super wooded areas and whatnot. They they claim that deer ticks aren't as bad as the eastern woodland tick. But I think they're starting to change their tune a little bit. You know, this guy I go to in Idaho, he says that you'd be surprised how many outdoorsmen are starting to come in that have Lyme disease. And like I said, it's, it's super hard to diagnose what tests you can do to, to see the parasites. And that's kind of how they, they finally tell it's there. But uh, it can manifest as arthritis. There's a guy that went blind in one eye up there. There's like MS type symptoms, you know, heart issues, asthma issues. It, it just wherever kind of those parasites or those bacteria cells land is kind of where it starts wreaking havoc. So I, I don't know. I mean, I've tried to be a little bit more preventative ever since then. You know, I still shed hunt. I still get ticks on me. You know, I try to wear gaiters now a little bit more than I used to to try to keep them out of your pants. I was reading something today and I need to research it more. There's one of the outdoor companies just released a new product that's kind of like a ozonics type thing, you know, that helps keep them off you and repel you what they do get on you. So I'm going to look into that a little bit more and see, you know, what it's all about. But, you know, the, the biggest thing I think is to be aware if you do get bit, probably go in and get checked immediately just so you got a chance of getting an antibiotic in you to get rid of it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's around. There's a lot more guys than you think that, that have it and probably don't realize it. How's it affected your hunting? I know, what, two or three years ago, you were kind of kept out of the whole game for a little while, weren't you? Yeah, so that, that year that it got really bad, that was uh, 2015, I was in and out of the hospital like crazy. You know, they couldn't figure out why my liver was redlining, and I kept having these really bad flare-ups where it would just knock me out pain-wise and be running a fever for like a week straight. So that year, I didn't hunt really at all. Started, I guess, started getting treatment, I think, in June. And so in about a month, they were starting uh-huh. to get me feeling quite a bit better. But by that point, the, the drawings had kind of all come and gone. I did have a Utah dedicated hunter tag, and so I, I went and did that. And then I actually drew a – the last drawing is Idaho, right? You put in for everything, like, end of June. Right. And so we put in for a hunt that we thought we would draw. The odds were, like, one in three for deer. And then I just put in for their one of their best elk hunts kind of as a – you got to buy a license type thing, put in for both. We didn't draw the the uh, deer tag, and I drew the elk tag somehow. You know, it, it it got better enough that I was able to go hunt. I backpacked in on the Utah muzzleloader hunt, shot the only buck I've shot with a muzzleloader, actually, like a 175 4x5 with my muzzleloader. And I was by myself, so it was kind of like a test of willpower, you know, to see if I can still do this or not after being so sick. So that was it was fun. Uh, my wife made me buy a, an in-range device, you know, so I could communicate with her a little bit more and so I didn't die on the mountain without her knowing where I was. I had one this year, and you know what? That's probably something that's going to be in the pe- my pack for a long time. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I'm i tempted to sell mine and buy the new one, to be honest, that has, you know, since they were merged with Garmin, it, it's they've kind of merged the two technologies, so it eliminates one thing right. in your pack. 
I'm going to wait one more year and see what Garmin does with it. You know, one more generation down the road, I think. Yeah. I think everything they built this year was still in the DeLorme factory. Right. But they put the Garmin name on it. So I'd like to see them have, like, SD card capabilities so you can use your Onyx maps in them and stuff like that. But right. We'll see. Yeah, I think it'd be awesome if they would emerge it like with the Oregon or the Montana, and so you have right you know, the color screen with your all your topography and whatnot, and then still have the satellite communicator. That's what I'm hoping they'll do next year. Yeah. If not, I'll probably just break down and get one. But so Garmin, if you're listening, do a yeah <laughs> yeah Garmin. <laughs> yeah, and don't charge like a thousand dollars for them, right? Make it a little bit affordable. Forty nine dollars and. Uh... <laughs> Send us three free ones. <laughs> right. That'd be awesome. So, Kyle, I'm actually an occupational therapist, and so I'm just interested if you did anything to, I know you were so sick, but what kind of was your process to get back where you could at least tolerate some functional activity in the mountains on that muzzleloader hunt? Um, biggest thing was just trying to rebuild my strength back after all that. You know, I lost quite a bit of weight that year, and then just being so sick, you know, you, you just lay around and so your muscle memory deteriorate quite a bit. So I, I play basketball a lot. And so that year I hadn't played much. And so I kind of picked that back up in and started going to the, the gym and working out again and trying to get in some shape. You know, a lot of it I think is mental. It's, it's trying to, you know, realize that you just got to be mindful of what your body's telling you. And so if you got to take a break, you got to take a break. You know, that muzzleloader trip, I tried to go as light as I could. You know, when I shot a deer, that kind of all went out the window. But when you're by yourself and have to carry the whole deer, I hate taking two trips to places. So it's one of those where you bone it out and just throw it on and suffer for a while, you know. But, right. So, you know, a lot of it, I've always been in, in pretty good shape. And so it's not like it was super hard to get back to being where I could do things again. A lot of it was just getting my guts right enough where I could get you know, nutrients in me and stay in me that it would start doing me some good. Like I said, a lot of it's mental and I still have to be careful today. I mean, there's times that I can tell that I'm, uh, I guess, weak, you know, and I, if I get too run down, I can kind of feel it flare up and whatnot. And I start having pain and what things like that. And so it, it's a matter of just knowing when to, I guess, take it a little bit easier, which is, is kind of hard to do when you're in the back country. You know, it, if you're backpacking in places, you know, usually you're carrying a lot of weight. One thing we've always done in the high country is we have stashes around, you know, where we'll hang things in trees and try to ease the burden of when we're carrying the hunting pack to have most of our food and water already in there somewhere. So, you know, as far as getting rehabbed, I think that was the biggest thing was just getting to the point where I could stand up again. And once I could get where I was walking around again, then it was, you know, just a day at a time kind of thing, getting back into the gym and. Uh, and getting food in me and whatnot. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us, Kyle. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a risk that people don't ever realize is really out there. I mean, you hear of ticks, but and that you shouldn't have them bite you. But, uh, I mean, that can, can ruin your life. <laughs> okay, especially with the wet year that we had, like last year, I've never seen so many ticks. I mean, we, we packed two bucks off the mountain, and I don't know, your Idaho bucks, if you had this, but both of those bucks had ticks. And this was, I mean, this was later in the fall. So, I mean, they're definitely there. You know, we've been out riding horses and stuff and got into a mess and had problems with the horses. The only other one, the only time I've ever remember, my, my brother got bit once, but 
Um, other than that, when I really haven't had any trouble. So it's just one of those things that you got to be wary of, and we sure appreciate you sharing that. I think there are people that listen to this. Maybe I mean maybe we could prevent somebody else having the the issues or the problems that you had. So mm-hmm. we appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it's just you know it's like anything in in the wilds. You drink the water without a filter. You're asking for trouble. You know you you get ticks on you. You're you're asking for a little trouble at times. I think. Uh, you know, there's other things you can get from ticks other than Lyme disease that are just as bad or worse. And so it, it's something to be mindful of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty nasty little critters. I just think that, you know, prevention is the key. And if you know about it, then we're there for a purpose. And I, I honestly don't think about ticks much, but it's, it's definitely something to have in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yeah. I need to, I'm going to look into some treatment methods i don't know if like permethrin you know you can treat your clothes in permethrin and it's usually pretty scent free and i wonder if that would kill them you know when they get on your clothes or something like that but do you guys know does regular deet work for ticks i don't know i don't know i know there's like they were they sell those tick suits like for turkey hunters you know where you put on the skin tight leggings and things like that but man i don't know if i could wear those all the time it'd drive me crazy i I just remember I served uh, my mission overseas too, and we had nasty critters, and and they'd give us permethrin to spray around the doorways and stuff in the house. Yeah. And you'd come out, and you know the houses are all infested with cockroaches anyway. But spray, and then go to sleep, and get up, and there'd just be dead bugs all over the floor. Maybe it's not good for people either, but it probably would kill them. And I know the other problem: the winters have been so warm that it hasn't got cold enough to kill a lot of them off. You know, and so they've peaked as well where the deer have kind of thrived the last seven or eight years as well from light winters well the bugs have done the same thing where you know it hasn't quite got cold enough to kill a lot of the larvae i think it affects the moose more than anything i've seen some moose that are pretty hammered yeah we had one right in town last year yeah i heard of one up just over the border here in idaho that a buddy of mine local here found dead in the creek bottom and he said it was just covered in them seen it alive and came back in it was laying there dead and he said it just looked like it's its hair was just crawling because they were all exiting off of it like thousands and thousands of them yeah yeah they're pretty pretty nasty so kyle you kind of got into it a little bit uh what what other tips or tactics do you have for the high country hunter that you've you've kind of found or transitioned into the the last couple years uh, in relation to backpack hunting especially so you know as as you two guys know for sure right the best equipment you can afford is probably the way to go. You know, when you're planning on being in the backcountry for several days at a time, you've got to be able to get enough sleep and nourishment in you that you can keep going. You know, you burn a lot of calories climbing around. And so, you know, being able to get at least one big meal in you a day is a big thing. The first few years we, we hunted in there, we were dumb enough that we were just always thinking we'd find water hunting. And so we'd end up dehydrated two days in and have to come out we've gotten a little wiser as we've gotten older apparently so you know we try to make sure that we you know i usually eat a mountain house for dinner every every night and then like tuna stuff for lunch you know i've tried to get lighter with my gear every year as far as the pack that i have and uh tent and sleeping bag and things like that you know the tricky part is none of that stuff's cheap and if you want to get lighter and lighter it's more and more dollars so i think it's just trying to do what you can afford and what you're comfortable with you know probably tactic wise uh, i'm a glasser at the same time you've got to know when to be aggressive as well 
you know, I, I my wife teases me that, you know, I'll sit on one rock all day long and just sit there and glass from that spot. If you're hunting one particular deer and you kind of know where he lives, you really don't want to go traipsing through there and blow him out of there if he's holed up. You kind of got to be patient and wait for him to make a mistake. You know, with that being said, if you're time crunched or things like that, or there's other guys around, you know, maybe it's time to look at being a little bit more aggressive. You know, last year we, we could have very easily just watched that buck till dark and try to make a move on him the next day. But you never know if guys on horseback stumble into him and kill him, you know, if he gets blown out and doesn't show up for another couple of days. I've learned the hard way a couple of times that when you see bucks on private land, you've got to make a move like instantly. You know, you got to figure out a game plan and, and get after it. You know, we, we had one year actually in the same basin where, I can't remember what year it was, it's was probably 1999 or so. Uh, the night before the hunt, we found a buck that my nephew ended up killing actually two weeks later, and he's 39 inches wide and uh, has 19 total points. But we had that deer put to bed the night before the hunt, so we were going nuts trying to figure out who's going to get a chance to kill him. And mm-hmm. There were three of us with tags in the same tent, and it was about to be a fist fight, you know, to see who was going to get a chance at him. But uh, we woke up, ne- up the next morning, and he was feeding right where we left him. He was probably only about 1,400 yards away could have easily gotten within rifle range pretty fast but you know long range thing wasn't quite as big a deal back then and we were a little bit i think too overconfident that nobody else was going to show up he, he went bedded down pretty early like before the sun had come up he was in his bed mm-hmm. and so we we kind of thought oh we'll just get on him you know later on today and get him killed when he stands up and i don't know probably a half an hour after that two guys showed up and ended up bumping him out, and we watched him miss him as he blew out of his bed. You know, I always think back of that. Had we made a mad dash to get within rifle range while he was on his feet, we probably would have killed him that morning. So, I don't know. I've learned on on public ground when there's guys around, you're probably wise to push the envelope a little bit to see if you can get a a crack at them while they're out in the open. You know, you guys will know that once stuff gets in the timber and the pressure creeps up, a lot of those big deer just don't show themselves very often. And so when they're in killable spots, you've got to do everything you can to try to get within gun range of them. Yeah, that's good advice. Everybody, I think, that hunts public land has had experience with other hunters getting in the way of a stock or blowing something or, you know, whether they whether they knew the animal was there or not. And uh, I agree with that completely. I as well, but sometimes it's hard to know you know, exactly when to go fast and when to wait. If you had, you know, percentage-wise, you know, of all the hunts that you've done, um, are you going pretty much when you see them, if they're in a killable spot, are you going there right away? Are you kind of seeing, or does it just depend? You know, I think it depends, and a lot of it depends on how big the deer is, too, you know. You know, if it's one I'm definitely after, a giant, then I think it's, you got to go make a move right then and there from what I've learned last probably four or five years. So it, it depends, you know, I think the majority of the times that I've waited, I'm trying to think, I don't know if I've ever got back on them. You know, I think all the ones that I've killed, it's been a little bit more aggressive where it's go get after them while they're out in the open and while you know exactly where they're at. There's, there's times when you, I think you can afford to be patient if you're the only one around or it's a, a really limited hunt. There's not a lot of guys. You know, here in Utah, like on the, the special elk hunts, you can rat hole animals, come back to them, and kill them later in the hunt if you're, you know, not exactly willing to settle, I guess, for that particular animal at that point. I, I don't know. I'd say the last three or four years, I've probably 
been more aggressive than passive, I think. And, you know, it hasn't paid off on all of them, but it's paid off on a couple of them here the last couple of years. So I find that's one thing that I do is maybe I'm a little bit more passive because I try to account for all the variables and, you know, I haven't got a lot to show for it. So maybe that's one thing that I learned from you tonight is maybe that I personally need to be a little bit more aggressive. So, but be smart when you're doing it. I mean, you can't just go blow over there. Yeah, well, the other thing is, is, you know, we've had times where we've taken off being aggressive and then you'll get there and realize that the angle's not right and you can't see or the wind switches. You know, at that point, I think you, you still have the opportunity to back out. You know, we have that on elk hunts all the time where, you know, elk, their defense mechanism is their nose. And, you know, you get the wind swirling on bulls that are bugling. It's just not worth it to go in there because you're just going to blow them out. So we've learned to be a little more passive in those situations where, you know, if, if you don't have steady wind when you're in the timber on the elk, it's just not worth the risk because you'll never catch them. You know, they don't really care about the noise. And so tromping around is no big deal. But the minute that wind hits your back, it's over. And so I think it's in those moments that guys have got to realize that they're doing more harm than good. You know, at that point, you might as well back out and leave that bull undisturbed and then come back later. I think that's the hardest part, just mentally knowing like where to be aggressive and then where to stop, you know, because I think even if you, almost every situation I can think of, you need to go really hard. There's a point where you have to stop or slow down. I mean, or quit, quit being so aggressive. So, and I think that comes with experience, but I always get fooled by country. Like we were hunting a in Idaho this year and we just weren't finding a lot of big bucks and we found this I don't know 180 class buck on like the third day or something like that and it looked like you know he was probably 1400 yards and it looked like we could just pop around you know one little ridge and we'd have him 450 yards but it was three big giant canyons you know so it took us what I thought it'd take 15 20 minutes took us an hour and a half I mean we we busted over there and were aggressive and we were still too late he'd bedded in some timber so but, you know, if we would have been like, oh, we can be there fast and taking our time, it would have taken us a lot longer than that even. Yeah, there's there's always that kind of uh, point of no return, right, where you you get to a certain proximity of, the of, you know, your what you're after. And it, it's either, okay, we keep going and push the envelope or we back out and pray that he shows back up. You know, the guys that I put in with last year with G, they're good friends, but they don't hunt a ton. We ended up going to the low country later on because they couldn't do high country stuff. The very first night we were there, uh, we found a buck that was, what was he, probably 185 and had like six on one side and five or six on the other. Um, just a, a cool buck. He was probably only about seven or 800 yards away, but this guy didn't have uh, a long range gun at all. It was three, 400 yards and in kind of thing. And Where the buck was, I knew we were either going to shoot him from where we were at at six or 700 yards or 50 yards you know it was right before dark and kind of the same adage of well if we don't go get a run at him now you know they're migrating who's no one is going to be around tomorrow so we took off over there and we got right above where he was at couldn't turn him up and i, I kind of told my friend well he's he's here he hasn't left we're just gonna have to go sneaking through here until see him or jump him and you're gonna have to make a quick shot you know he kind of i kind of stayed back a ways and he went into the very first grove of trees, and sure enough, he was the buck was in there. He jumped out, and he shot at him twice running away. He should have killed him. His first shot was like 50 yards. But, you know, I don't think, had we not pushed the envelope, I don't think we would have saw that deer again. You know, they were on the move enough that he would have been 10 miles away the next day. Yeah, with migrating animals, you got to make your move when you can because they're, they're gone the next morning. 
on the next hour sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So Kyle, you've kind of had quite a bit of experience hunting multiple states and on all over. Um, tell us about your most memorable hunt. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, last year ranks pretty high. I lost my dad early on in May. And so, you know, last year meant a little bit more as far as the Wyoming hunt. The Wyoming high country is probably my favorite hunt that I do and I've ever done. You know, there's been good ones and bad ones. I drew, uh, you know, Utah is kind of a once in a lifetime deal on their elk hunts. And I drew, well, I drew Monroe when I was 15 and that was before their point system started. And then the next year is when they started it. And so I'm one of the few that have had two kind of good elk tags in Utah. So I drew the Boulder Mountain in 2010, and I spent about 40 days on the mountain total trying to chase around and, uh, and figure things out. And, you know, for, I love hunting big deer, but there's also just something about hunting elk when they're bugling. And when you're hand-to-hand kind of combat with them, you know, Boulder's super thick timber, and so you're you're calling them in they're in your face and it's you know making quick decisions when they're in the trees and, and banging around and, you know that, that's just amazing i had my wife with me the whole time and so she was videoing behind me for five days and then i shot my bull on the fifth day so i don't know there's been a lot of, of super memorable a lot of memorable ones i started calling our basement you know people call it the trophy room or whatever but to me it's just memories you know it's, it's turned into the memory room more than I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a trophy hunter, but I've kind of decided I don't really like that adage. You know, I, I love to eat them. My whole goal last year was to shoot, fill, fill the freezer full. But uh, I don't know, you know, I, I look around down here and it's just, it brings back memories of each hunt. And so that's what I think of when I, you know, look at the antlers and the heads and stuff is each one of them is, you know, has its own little special thing to me, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, mounts always mean more you can walk in somebody else's trophy room and say, you know, that's cool. Or, you know, maybe they got a 170 buck on the wall and you're like, oh, nice buck, you know. But, uh, I mean, when, when you look at your own mount, it just brings back the whole experience, I think. I think it's more about the memories than the than the trophy. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Not only the memories, but just the whole experience. I always reflect on the people that I'm with, too, usually. I mean, my dad's got so many, but, you know, every one of those deer, I remember where I was. And, you know, there's one buck in particular that just means so much to me just because I was a little boy at 14 years old and I wanted a big buck and dad got that one and I was so mad at him that he did. And then later on, I was able to mount that for him for Christmas. And that buck to both of us means something special. You know, even this buck that Brad killed last year, you know, I didn't pull the trigger, but I was there the whole time. you know, that, that buck means a lot to me, and it'll be yeah. fun to have him here in the shop. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's been a lot. You know, I've for, so for the next three years after I drew my boulder tag, I had uh, family members that had the rifle tag as well. And so those mean just as much to me really as my own stuff, as being able to help good friends kill, kill animals and just watch their excitement level, you know, especially if it's friends that haven't uh, experienced it a lot. This year, I'm probably going to go help my high school baseball basketball coach. He's going to draw an elk tag here in Utah, and so I'm going to go take the week and go tell, help him out. It's all about the memory. I think I'm starting to learn that more and more as I get a little bit older and start kind of thinking about, you know, a, a lot of, I don't know. As you get older, it's kind of weird. I think you start thinking about life a little bit more. You know, when you're younger, you don't seem to care so much. You're just out having a good time and, you know, running all over the place and, I think they mean a little bit more to me now than they did, you know, 15 years ago. And it just goes back to, like I said, it's about creating those memories. 
you know, I think everybody chases inches and, you know, I do to a certain extent as well, but you know, I, I think that gets way too overstressed in today's world. Yeah, for sure. Especially with social media where you can see everybody's big bucks and then you feel like you need one too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's really not about that. <laughs> well, cool. No, I think that's perfect way to kind of wrap this up. I think, um, did you look at the invasion page? Is there yeah, anything on that? I didn't have any, any questions. So, those of you that listen to this, we're going to um, actually do a better job. We forgot to post that in far enough advance that people can ask you questions. But uh, with that, Kyle, if uh, anyone listens to this um, and wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that, either a social media platform or how can people follow what you're doing? You know, probably social media, you know, either Facebook or through the Altitude, Altitude site or something like that. You know, my email is just my name at yahoo.com, so that's pretty easy. And I think that's on Facebook. And so if, you know, guys want to email me and talk to me about things, I'd be more than happy. You know, I, I don't mind helping people. It's like I said, it, we're, we're kind of all in the same gig. You know, I'm not going to go tell somebody exactly where I hunt, obviously. But, you know, I've been a lot of places in the West. And so, you know, there, there's areas that I realize I'm never going to get back to. And so I don't mind helping guys out when they draw that once-in-a-lifetime tag. That's awesome. I think that's really cool as well. So, Kyle, we sure appreciate your time and appreciate you doing this with us. And I know that I've learned a lot. So, um, you know, that's one thing that I've really enjoyed about these podcasts is, uh, you know, it's kind of nice being in front of the microphone because we can get to pick your brain and actually ask questions that, that really will make <laughs> us better hunters. And I kind of feel a little bit selfish, but we sure appreciate your yeah. time. And, well, it's fun because, I mean, we've we've known each other for a few years and then we we get to talk stories that we've never heard and they just never come up in other places so but yeah we appreciate the, appreciate you being on and sharing your insight i think it's going to be valuable for a lot of people perfect it's been fun you're listening to the hunt the high country podcast